Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly podcast on British politics from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne, digital comment editor, and this week we'll be dissecting what's happened in the EU referendum campaign this week and whether the Tories are out to destroy the BBC. To discuss this, I'm delighted to be joined by our business editor, Sarah Gordon, our chief leader writer, Jonathan Ford, leader writer, James Blitz, and the political commentator and author, Ian Martin. Thank you all for coming. So let's begin with the EU referendum, which has certainly kicked up a notch after the so-called short campaign began. With just six weeks till voting day, the Remain campaign has ramped up the fear by talking about the possibility of war or conflict after Brexit. On the Leave side, they've tried to move their case on from immigration while getting into an unfortunate argument with ITV about Nigel Farage. So, James Blitz, to begin, what's the campaign looking like at this stage? The polls are still very tight. It doesn't feel like as if anyone's really gaining any momentum. Yes, I think with five weeks to go, the polls are tight. The Remain side is on about 46%, the Leaf side on about 43%, but there's a margin of error in these polls of about 3%. So I don't think anybody can be confident of any result. I think what you've seen as a result of that is that the campaign this week has become very intense, very animated. The rhetoric has really shot up. Started off with David Cameron in a speech on Monday saying that if we did leave the EU, there would be a risk that this would create conflict. This was immediately seized upon by Boris Johnson on the same day, who said it's absolutely ridiculous for the Prime Minister to be suggesting that Brexit might lead to World War III. I think Boris Johnson had a point. After all, only a few months ago, David Cameron was saying he'd be prepared to back Brexit if he didn't get a few modest concessions on workers' benefit payments, if we didn't get those concessions from the Europeans. So clearly armed conflict wasn't a problem then. But anyway, that's how it's gone. And it's continued like that. And it's finishing off now with these really hefty interventions by the governor of the Bank of England, the managing director of the IMF, who are once again coming back to the key economic argument which is that if we leave, there's going to be a very big impact on UK economic output. One of the things that struck me, Sarah Gordon, looking at what's happened in the campaign this week is they've got two very distinct strategies here, with Christine Lagarde and Mark Carney offering quite relatively stark um, warnings about what Brexit could entail, compared to the Leave campaign who have often said, well, the IMF, it's funded by the EU, so they're naturally biased. And then Mark Carney's been criticised by Norman Lamont, the former Chancellor. So it's very much, you know, it feels like it's very much the establishment versus this kind of guerrilla Brexit operation here. Do you think anyone cares what either of these sides are listening at the moment or is it all just background noise? Well, I think if you are already a committed Leave supporter, messages of doom from Mark Carney or from Christine Lagarde don't, they just bolster your argument that EU membership benefits the rich and the powerful and is against the interests of the little man. However, I think if you're an undecided voter, I think those pieces of information are useful. I mean, all the surveys suggest that voters who remain undecided are partly undecided because they feel they lack proper information. And I feel very strongly that the more information that they have, therefore, the more likely they are to take a stance. I mean, the interesting thing in terms of still the backing from different parts of the business community, for example, is still extremely divided on both sides of the campaign. Because one of the other things that we saw this week, James, as well, is this fight over the TV debates, which are going to happen, begin towards the end of May and into June. Now, vote leave, which the official... Brexit campaign, pro-Brexit campaign. They're not very good friends with Nigel Farage, I think you could describe it as. And 
ITV appear have gone to over their head to pick Nigel Farage as one of the debate people. And you can see why they've, you know, 3.9 million people voted for UKIP and obviously Farage has a constituency of support. But we then saw this extraordinary attack which dropped in journalists' inbox at 11 o'clock on Wednesday night from a source within Vote Leave who said that it was all being stitched up by Downing Street and that ITV better watch out and the people in number 10 better watch out as well. So it seemed to be threatening both the Prime Minister and the broadcaster. Yes, it's an enormous kerfuffle that's happened over broadcasting. And on one level, having followed all this in the general election, when there was an enormous kerfuffle, actually a much bigger one, over whether David Cameron would take part in head-on-head debates with Ed Miliband, which got everybody very worked up. In the end, it didn't make a whole lot of difference to anything. Cameron was able to see out the demand that there should be a one-on-one debate, which actually was quite strong, given that there had been such a debate and the 2010 election. So on one level, I put it to one side. On the other hand, it is indicative, one, of the very serious splits there are on the Leave side. Because on the one hand, you've got the Farage crowd, who are really very strong on the immigration and free movement side of things. And then you've got the rest, who are trying to make more of a kind of free market type of argument. So there is a split there. And I also think it is a worry for them now that this has happened and Farage is going to be the person appearing with the prime minister because he is a big, he is a polarising figure. He is a turnoff. And if they had Boris Johnson there, it would probably, I wouldn't say definitely, but would certainly help them. So all in all, it is a negative, but I wouldn't necessarily draw anything from that and say it's a big moment. I think it's just an indication of how divided the Leave side are and how animated some of the passions are. What was a big moment this week, I think, Sarah, was the release of the first donor date on who's giving money to the EU referendum campaign. Now, I was quite shocked. There's a lot of money floating about here, considering that the whole general election was sort of cost £39 million. And so far, we've had millions thrown around. What can you tell us about who's donating to the Remain and Leave campaigns? And is there a lot more money to come, do you think? Well, I think the first thing to say is that this does not include political party spending. So more money is being spent on campaigning than these numbers from the Electoral Commission told us this week. The second thing is that this only measures donations given between the 1st of February to the 22nd of April. So it's a limited time since the beginning, essentially, of the official campaign. What it does show, though, is that the Leave campaign is significantly out fundraising the Remain campaign. In that period of time, the seven registered Leave campaigns raised 8.2 million, while five Remain campaigns raised 7.5 million. Now, that is partly driven. I mean, it's partly surprising because the Remain campaign, after all, is backed by the bigger businesses and the international banks. They've had donations from Morgan Stanley, from JP Morgan, from Goldman Sachs, from Citibank. But the Remain, the Leave campaign has attracted really an enormous number of very significant donations from individuals. I mean, the largest individual donation in this whole list of numbers that came out on Wednesday was from Peter Hargreaves, the founder of Hargreaves Lansdowne, the advisory company. And he has donated 3.2 million to Leave.eu, which is incidentally the not the official Leave campaign, but the one backed by Aaron Banks, the insurance billionaire and UKIP supporter. What's interesting, I suppose, as well is because, you, as you said, it is quite surprising. You would imagine that the incoming would have a lot more money here. But given the warnings from the IMF, the Bank of England, you're seeing things are still pretty split out there. Is it a split between big business and small business? Because you mentioned there were individuals who are giving this money, not companies who are giving this money to the Brexit campaign. I think what the very high level of individual donations to the Leave campaign 
demonstrates is the fact that Leave supporters are very, very highly committed. And this is one of the things which the Remain camp is most worried about, that because they are highly motivated, they are not just willing to dig deep into their own pockets, but also on June the 23rd, they will be willing to come out and vote in droves. I think that's an incredibly important point. I think the, most, the thing I've drawn most from this week is that although the Remain side is winning the economic argument, it's won the high ground, it's not in any way been holed or undermined by the Leave side. You've had all these people come out, Carney, Lagarde and so on. What is still worrying is that the passion in this campaign is with the Leave people. I think that is what is should be of real concern to them. They've got the money, they've got the passion, they've got the people who are coming out. And that, I think, is the worry. We also saw this week a bit of clarity from Michael Gove. This was actually sort of last weekend, but a bit of clarity on what the post-Brexit economy would look like. And Michael Gove, the Justice Secretary, who's one of the most eloquent people on the Leave side, said the EU would leave the single market. And that's gone down, I think, pretty badly, particularly with big business. I think it was the um, CEO of Siemens who tweeted this, saying that he obviously has no idea how it works, that if the Leave campaign does rally around behind that vision, Sarah, what's that going to mean for the debate, do you think? Well, I think a, an outright acknowledgement that leaving would mean leaving the single market is a step forward. It's a step that the Leave campaign hasn't really explicitly been willing to absolutely put its name behind. So I think it gives clarity to voters. And of course, there is a debate about what leaving the single market would actually look like, because of course, what matters is what replaces the single market. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think the Gove comments were clarification. They mean that from their point of view, if we did leave, we're not going to go down the Norway or Switzerland route where we're members of the European Economic Area and we basically do a trade-off in which we have full access to the single market, but we allow free movement, which is the situation. What we would move to, and Boris Johnson said it, is something more like a US-style relationship. What Boris Johnson doesn't explain, however, is if we are outside the single market, and it's a WTO, what are the costs of actually having access to the single market? What are the obligations we have? Wolfgang Schauble, the German finance minister, made this point really strongly yesterday. He was saying, OK, you can have some access to the single market, but what are the obligations? You get nothing for free. And all of that has not really been explained by the Leave side. It is still their biggest weakness. It's why they basically lost the economic argument, and it's unlikely to me that they're going to regain it. Essentially, their argument is going to come back down inevitably to immigration and the control of borders. And I think the other thing we saw this week was this ONS data, which has been talked about by a lot of the right wing papers who thought there was going to be this huge gap between the official figures of how much people have come to Britain and the actual figures. I think when it came out, James, it was not that straightforward at all. There's a lot of short term migration there. But will people understand that nuance, do you think? Or do you think this is going to add more uncertainty to those floating voters' mind. I don't think they were, with respect to the public. I think the problem, basically, you've got on at moments like this is the public don't trust anything that they see. There have been two huge events on the immigration front in the last 10 or 15 years, and they totally dominate the debate. The first is when Tony Blair said that the, a certain number of people were going to come in 2004 because of the enlargement of the EU to Eastern Europe, and the numbers that came were far bigger. That completely undermined public confidence. And then when David Cameron said he would get net migration down to the tens of thousands, they've totally failed to do it. In the wake of that, the public is inclined to disbelieve anything positive that it sees on immigration. So in the end, you don't come round to figures. You come round to arguments about the impact on the economy, the impact on wages. And I think above all, what I think is our central argument for the FT is that 
you've got this migration, and but you've, you're going to have to deal with it through higher investment in infrastructure, in housing, in schooling if you're an indigenous white working class population. But those are quite big arguments and complex arguments, and they are being made very, very late in the day. But I do think also it's important to point out that to suggest that the Leave campaign is really pivots on the issue of immigration is just a radical oversimplification of what they're saying. And I think it demeans a number of you know very serious thinkers and business people who believe profoundly in a whole range of benefits to Brexit, which may or may not include control of our borders. I'm just going to add one more thing for our listeners here. The other event this week, which I was lucky enough to see, was the premiere of Brexit, the movie at Leicester Square, and with such high-profile VIPs as Nigel Lawson and Nigel Farage who went down the red carpet. And it's a very interesting film if you're interested in what James was saying earlier as the pro-trade, almost maybe libertarian view of Brexit. It was very little talk of immigration. It was all about how deregulation could help the economy. It's free to watch on YouTube. So if you're interested in the Brexit case, it's worth an hour of your time to see that point of view. And as Sarah said, it adds a different picture to it just about border control. Now on to the BBC, and the government has produced its long-awaited white paper on the future of Britain's state broadcaster. Essentially, it's suggesting a total overhaul of the corporation and how it is governed. Questions have naturally been raised on what this means for the Beeb, its independence from politicians, its output and its purpose, not least the celebrities who voiced their concerns at the BAFTA Awards last week. So Jonathan Ford, the FT and its leader column this week, we said that the BBC's independence will still be protected, but there is pain ahead for the corporation. Could you just summarise what's being suggested here and whether you think it's good or bad for the Beeb? Well, I think the white paper really covers the three points which are really important about the white paper. One is to do with the independence of the BBC. The second is to do with the funding and the licence fee. And the third is to do with its core mission. And to some extent, there were concerns on all three fronts ahead of the white paper. I think actually looking at what's come out of it, I think the BBC has reason to feel pretty relieved about the decisions that the government's finally reached. On independence, yes, there was a concern which was certainly very strongly voiced ahead of the white paper that the government might seek to use the changes to the way the BBC is run to its governance structure to effectively give ministers more control over who was appointed to the board and therefore the concern was that might imperil the editorial independence of the corporation. Well, that's Well, it's been significantly watered down. And although I think there may still be further debates about exactly how that process should work, I think the worst fears, if you like, have been averted. On the licence fee, I think it's pre... I mean, the damage, I think the BBC would argue, has already been done with the decision to make the corporation pay for the over 75s, which effectively leaves it with a sort of 10% real terms cut. But, you know, they have got the inflation-linked increases through the life of the next, I think it's 11-year settlement. So that's, if you like, closed off that area of concern. They've also got the right to effectively apply the licence to the iPlayer, so closing one of the holes that might have allowed some fee leakage over the next period of the charter. And on the last point, in terms of the core mission, I think what people were worried about was that the corporate or the government was going to apply a very prescriptive approach to try and reduce the size and scope of the BBC 
and effectively tell it how it should spend its money and when it could broadcast programmes and so forth. That's been watered down too to a broad statement of diversity, which I think most people wouldn't really... I mean, people wouldn't argue with the principle. It's really, once again, just a question of how it might be applied. What I suppose is interesting, Ian Martin, is that there's a sense, particularly among left-wing politicians and people of the left generally in this country, that the Conservatives are out to get the BBC for some reason. This wasn't helped by a comment. I believe, made during the election campaign when someone joked to Nick Robinson, oh, we're going to come and get you or something mm. after the general election because there was a sense in Downing Street and in Tory circles that the BBC is biased against them. You know, it doesn't appreciate their concerns or those their voters. But David Cameron seems to have backed down a little bit from some of the stuff that was being yes. suggested. Yeah. I mean, I think the BBC is right to be paranoid because quite a lot of Conservatives are out <laughs> to get the BBC. And there's a particular type of Thatcherite free market Conservative that sees reforming or tackling the or dismantling the BBC as unfinished business from the 1980s. But I think the BBC was helped by two things. Firstly, the short-term context suits the BBC in that the government is fighting on a number of fronts at the moment, not least of which is the European referendum. It can do without another messy confrontation with a great British institution after it's just had a rather bruising fight with uh, junior doctors and various other squabbles over education as well. But the longer-term context, I think, is that this should be seen through the prism of Cameron's personality and his instincts. And I always remember years ago when I was on The Telegraph, I was getting a little sort of rumour that Cameron was going to be tough on the BBC in government and really get to grips with the BBC. And I remember hearing Cameron say in private that he didn't get into politics to pick a fight with Terry Wogan and the audience of Radio 2. So I think Cameron is a realist, he's a pragmatist. While he might moan about some of the individual decisions of the BBC, he sees it as an institution. It's just, it's not a fight worth having. It's not a fight that he was, that the Conservative Party could uh, conceivably win. But Jonathan, not all people are in that mode. You know, the Thatcherite reforming kind of person who wants to clamp down on the BBC is essentially John Whittingdale, who is currently the Culture Secretary, who was Political Secretary to Margaret Thatcher during the 80s and is very much one of the few hardcore Thatcherites at the top of government here. And he was formerly chair of the Culture Select Committee. Mm. And I think there's certainly been a sense that he's been pushing to be quite hard on the BBC, not least thanks to various unguarded comments that he's made here. But it seems like, as Ian was saying, David Cameron's shire Tory instincts have won the day here. And this isn't going to be a massive fight. Or is there going to be a fight, do you think? Well, I tend to rather agree with you. And although I'd go further than saying this is Cameron thing, I think, uh, although I, I totally agree, I think his instincts are not to end up uh, at a bare, having a bare-knuckle fight with a uh, corporation. I think there is a much deeper thing, which is that this is, you know, the Conservatives may, you know, have mixed feelings about the BBC from a standpoint of individual things that are broadcast or from a an ideological standpoint on certain parts of the Tory party. But... This is a very Tory institution. You know, actually, the people, you know, I think a lot of studies have shown that, in fact, the average Tory voter is the real core listener to the BBC and the people who really value a lot of the things that the BBC does, which are distinctive. And I think the idea of taking on an institution 
which so much of your core support really feels quite sympathetic to, particularly, I think, also at a time when, if you think about you know, national institutions within the UK, which is something which I think a lot of Tory people do think, Tory voters do think about, you know, so many of those are coming under attack or have come under attack in the past. And this is an institution which still very much knits the nation together. I think it goes back to the, as so, so much does in this country, it goes back to the culture wars of the 1980s. There's the great irony of Thatcher is that Thatcher wraps herself in the Union flag, that she's a great monarchist and in some senses traditional but she's also a revolutionary insurgent figure. And the BBC, until that point, had not really had any problems with the, or not many problems with the Conservative Party. It was regarded as if the Church of England was the Tory party at prayer, then the BBC was the broadcasting arm of the Tory establishment. And it was always, remember, it was always Harold Wilson, Labour Prime Minister, who had the who had terrible clashes with the BBC in the 1960s, and it was seen as being biased against the Labour Party. Thatcher starts to see through a series of rows with Director General Alistair Milne, who's eventually fired, and a whole series of rows about what the BBC is broadcasting. It becomes an enemy within and something which a certain kind of conservative really starts to resent. I agree with Jonathan. I have a lot of criticisms of the BBC and the way that it functions and some of what it produces. I mean, who doesn't? Nothing is perfect. But I think it's a bit weird, actually, for conservatives to struggle with the idea of the BBC. Of course, you wouldn't invent it starting from scratch in the model it is now. But conservatives understand that you don't invent everything from scratch. It's it's inherited a lot of it. What it produces is very good and is recognised globally as being a very high quality. So it needs handling carefully. And it is something, I think, in the round worth protecting. I suppose the argument that could be made that the media environment has changed so much since those culture wars of the 80s that you talked about, that whether it's the rise of digital media, the decline of printed newspapers, sitting in the office of one of those that takes digital very seriously, you know, there's, I think there's no newspaper publication in the country that really doesn't. And I think you've also got the rise of commercial broadcasters in a way you've obviously got Sky, you've got Netflix, Amazon, you know, these are all very different concepts. And Jonathan mentioned iPlayer before, which is a very key part of the BBC's offering now, you know, particularly mm. to younger people. So there is an argument that the structure of the BBC, a, huge, a mammoth operation that has different parts all over the country, how does that fit into the very dynamic, quick, um, smaller media environment that exists elsewhere? I think there's a lot of truth in that. And I do think that the BBC faces long-term, very serious problems in terms of its audience. Younger people don't buy television sets. They consume media in a very, very different way. I don't think you own a television <laughs> set, Sebastian. My, my flatmate does. I watch on my laptop. So I'm well, there one you of those go. people. Well, there you go. So there's a, there's a whole... There's a licensing authority around. <laughs> <laughs> I pay my license fee just to clarify. Like everyone else. Excellent. But it's an audience with very different habits when it comes to consuming media. So they're going to be reluctant, potentially, in years to come or decades to come to pay for it. And there is other serious technological challenges coming the BBC's way. But while it faces difficulties, I think the key thing is that David Cameron didn't want to add to those difficulties. It seemed to be be taking it on. The BBC will face a real problem with its audience, with its funding over the next decade or so, but it won't be David Cameron's fault. And I think just finally on that point, Jonathan, you mentioned the licence fee at the very beginning there, and this is, again, for Conservatives who are very keen to cut down tax. A lot of them would like to see it changed or abolished, and I believe it has been decriminalised because that's one thing that, again, winds up Conservatives. So this charter review is keeping it in place. Do you think it will be scrapped in the next one? 
Well, I think that's 11 years away from that decision. I think, as Ian says, it's incredibly difficult to foresee where things may be in more than a decade's time. My guess is probably that I wouldn't kill this one off yet. I think people have been predicting the end of the BBC and the licence fee for a very long time. And actually, it's a proven, it's a cultural good, which has an enormous force of inertia behind it. And I think it will be enormous reluctance to see this institution go. And that's it for this week's episode. Thank you to all our guests for joining. We'll be back next Saturday for another instalment of FT Politics. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, you might enjoy the FT's Banking Weekly. It's presented by me, Patrick Jenkins, the financial editor at the FT, and I'm joined by a team and an external guest every week. You can find this every Tuesday at ft.com slash podcasts.